Today on Pro Corner, my conversation with Brett Hawk. Brett's journey and story is unbelievable in some ways, and I actually had to refresh myself on everything that he accomplished throughout his career. So going back to the 90s, in 1996, Brett came over from Australia to swim at Auburn University. There, he was a member of two NCAA championship winning teams, and he was also a nine-time event champion, so an extremely successful collegiate career. He also swam professionally for seven years out of college, representing Australia at both the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney and the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. During that time period, he also broke Australia's national record in the 50-meter freestyle, which means he was the fastest dead sprinter in the history of Australian swimming up to that point. After that, the success continued when Brett was hired as the assistant coach at Auburn University, his alma mater, where he immediately made an impact on the sprint world and in many ways was the sprint coach of the late 2000s and early 2010s. He coached his Auburn University collegiate swimmers to NCAA titles, NCAA team titles, um, NCAA records, and there's actually a pretty emotional story about 2009 when he took over as the men's team head coach for Richard Quick, who had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, and their men's team coalesced around that and won the title in pretty emotional fashion after being underdogs the entire year. But he also coached a pro group of the world's premier sprinters, including Cesar Cielo and Fred Brusquet, who were the two best sprinters in the world, arguably, from about 2007 to 2011. Um, Cesar ended up being the Olympic champion in the 50 freestyle, and Fred broke the world record in the 50 free, and his highest place was silver at the 2009 Worlds. So Brett's the guy for sprinting and he shaped a lot of what was happening in the sprint events in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Brett was the head coach at Auburn from 2009 all the way through 2018 where when he took over a role that I now know him day to day as which is the head of development for the Fitter Faster Swim Tour uh, the swim clinic company that I do a lot of work with and you hear me reference a lot on this podcast. And the main part of his duties uh, from what I've seen and from what I've experienced myself is that Brett is the guy at Fitter Faster who hires clinicians, develops clinicians, um, reaches out whenever someone is needed to go somewhere to run a clinic. And he's basically 1B to David Arluck, our CEO's 1A. And it puts him in this really interesting spot at the center of hundreds of these high-end, high-achieving professional athletes that do swim clinics regularly to make a living. And we get his perspective on just what it's like to be in the center of all of that, how swim clinics and what David started at Fitter Faster is shaping and improving what it means to be a pro in this time period in 2020 and the opportunities that are available to professional swimmers that weren't there before. Um, but he's also a great guy and we've been working together at Fitter Faster for two years now and I love talking to him and I think you guys are going to love to hear his story. Quick note before we get started, um, doing a mailbag episode very soon where I'm going to answer all of the great questions that I've been getting from listeners. 
uh, but there's still time left. So if you have a question or any sort of feedback or anything that you want me to read off and give my take on, email the pod, Austin at ProCornerPodcast.com or connect with the pod on Instagram at ProCornerPodcast and DM us there. We're also launching a YouTube channel, and I'm extremely excited about this. So if you're listening on any of the major platforms right now for audio-only podcasts, you can also find the audio from this podcast and all future video podcasts that we do on our Pro Corner YouTube page. So check us out on YouTube. That's another place where you can leave a question or feedback. Just drop a comment under the video. Enough of all that. Let's get started with Brett. All right, I'm here with Brett. We've just been chopping it up, talking about old war stories from the NCAA championships when he was head coach at Auburn and I was a swimmer at Texas, and we thought we'd start there today. Brett, how you doing, man? Good, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Um, I absolutely loved one of the stories you told me, and before we dig into anything about you and everything that we want to cover today, I was hoping you could share a little story with us from what is now 11 years ago at the 2009 NCAA championships that um, your team that you were coaching Auburn did to pump themselves up. Sure, man. Now, were you there? Were you representing Texas at that stage? So in 2009, and you're talking about when you guys won, right? Yes. No. So I was a senior in high school, but I was committed and I was talking to the guys and I was very invested in what was going on. Oh, okay. Okay. So 2009 was a very special, interesting year for us because our head coach, Richard Quick, was diagnosed with cancer in at Christmas time, around Christmas training, when, when you're supposed to be in the meat of your season, you know, getting your work in, being the, you know, getting the yardage in, hurting yourself the most. We actually got news that he was diagnosed with brain cancer and would never coach again and only had six months to live. So it was devastating for us right around that time. So they appointed me the head coach of the men's team at the time in uh, at the end of 2008, leading into 2009. And uh, I think our team was ranked probably, I think, about fifth in the country at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we had a good team, no doubt. Uh, we, we had players. We had guys that could swim. And if they swam really well, we could contend. But we certainly weren't favorites. But for some reason, not for some reason, understandably, that galvanized us all right it brought us together you know that that whole incident with richard we had something bigger to fight for so going into 2009 ncaa championships um to to kind of cut this story a little bit shorter we're swimming really well um we're representing really well we're we're in the thick of it day one and two are incredible for us we're doing great um friday night actually richard quick gets very sick and um, I get a message from his wife to say that he's in the bathroom throwing up while he's watching the NCAA championships. Um, you know, so he's he's in the thrust of dealing with this brain cancer while we're swimming at the NCAA. So um, it, it was very intense all around. And uh, so Saturday morning, uh, I decide, you know, we're actually, it's coming down to two teams. It's coming down to Auburn and Texas for the championship. And there's only a couple of points in it. I think I actually think Texas is ahead at this stage, but we knew we had a good day three. 
so we could be competitive, but we had to show up as you, as you do on day three of the NCAAs. You got to show up. So. And Texas had a lot of momentum because they ended day two with the A free relay win and the NCAA and the American record in that event. They did, yes, yeah, and and momentum goes a long way. You know that. So Texas walks out of the building feeling really good. We walk out feeling okay. Well, we're in it. We've got to fight. So okay. So Saturday morning, I'm trying to figure out what 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 can I do to tap into these guys psyche to come out swinging in the morning so i talked to my strength coach pk very famous strength coach at auburn and um i said listen i need you to do something for me i need you to talk to the team i'll let you talk to them by yourself just give me the first five minutes i'll chat with them and then you come in and do whatever you need to do i'll get all the coaches out and you just get them fired up to walk to the pool so we do that um i talk to the guys and uh turn around say all right pk wants to have the final word with you and, and we all leave and we just leave the boys in the room saturday morning before prelims okay mm-hmm. um and uh about 10 minutes later they walk out and they all have this look on their face like holy hell what is going on here like these boys are ready for war mm-hmm. i mean i would never seen a look on a team's face like this before so focused and so ready i was like okay well we're ready to go. And so I just kind of stood back and I said, PK, nice job, you know, fist bump, you know, and, uh, we go to the pool and, 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 um, we're actually sitting next to Texas. And so it's really tense on the deck. So the 200 backstrokes, the first event and the Texas boys are pretty fired up. And I just remember standing, uh, on the pool deck and looking over at Texas behind me. And one of the guys has this sign, like a Texas longhorn sign, of some sort it's made out of wood actually it's like a wooden sign and he's holding it up and he's pretty fired up the first event's coming up you know turn her back yeah you know everybody's <laughs> cheering everybody's excited and our boys are just ready to kill you know um but texas is feeling really good anyway the first event comes out and i remember this distinctly jared white is the last qualifier in the 200 backstroke and he uh he swims heat one, obviously. I think there's two other guys in the heat. And he go, he, his qualifying time was 147.0 at the time. 147. That was his best time in the turner back. He swims the turner back, first first pre- prelim swim in the morning, and goes 140.2. I mean, drops seven seconds. That's unreal. And I, and I just see this guy with the Texas sign holding it up over his head. And then he puts it down and puts it on the bench and then just sits down. And then from that moment, next guy up, next guy up, next guy up, drop, 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 drop. These guys were just dropping like crazy stuff. So anyway, I, I have Tyler McGill on my podcast um, a couple of days ago. And, and I said to him, look, I, I've never known fully what PK said in that in that room. Can you, because Tyler was one of the captains of the team mm-hmm. that year. I said, can you tell me what happened? He said, yeah, PK came in with paint on his face. He came in uh, painted up as the Joker from the dark night okay and um oh my gosh he he comes in painted as the dark night and i didn't see him walk in at the room at the time i just kind of walked out and pk walked in so i didn't realize he came in as the dark night and um so apparently they did this circuit earlier in the year where he dressed up as the joke and they had this most incredible circuit and and he just said to the boys he said remember what we've done to get here and, um, you know, he was very emotional and obviously said a few things about the, the, the season they've had, the, the reasons why they're there, how they got there, all that sort of stuff. And then at the end of it, he said he held up a Texas t- swimming T-shirt and he said, who wants a piece of this? 
And uh, he said all the boys just jumped in and started tearing the Texas T-shirt to pieces, just, <laughs> just ripping it up, ripping it up, ripping it up. And PK said, everybody take a piece and put it on your bag and take it to the pool and represent today. And so everybody tied a, a certain piece of the Texas T-shirt to their bag. And nobody said a word. Nobody even mentioned it. You know, I didn't know about it. I, I still didn't know this story 11 years later. So I found out about it the other week. But apparently these guys had just torn this Texas T-shirt up and said, nothing's going to stop us today and we're, we're, we're going to kill. And they went in and had the most phenomenal single session i've ever seen any swim team have i mean they destroyed that session by the end of it it was done the meet was over it was gone and uh and they just went into celebration mode after that so pretty crazy story right yeah i'm picturing the t-shirts and the headspace that those guys are in like like their animal pelts or something like that like uh like a trophy from a hunt yeah Mm -hmm. so exactly i really want to dig into just your thoughts on that sort of I guess, wartime feeling that you get at meets and when people get into that vortex together. But I'm actually going to hit you with a story of my own because Auburn's experience, and this is now from a Texas fan's perspective, um, uh-huh. it was so impactful that win because you guys were not supposed to win. You guys were underdogs. Texas was the machine at the time. I, uh, I think three yeah. guys on the team, actually two guys active in one red shirt, had been Olympians the year before, and that whole next year after you guys won, the guys that were on the Olympic team were all seniors. And our mantra the entire year was, we have to beat Auburn. Like, we basically became you guys in reflection. Even down to, we actually had a pretty crazy uh, similar rah-rah thing that we did uh, before we left for the meet, actually. So one of the guys on the team, mm-hmm. he owned a snake. And we painted the Auburn logo on a mouse and put it in the snake's cage and cheered it on as he attempted to hunt this mouse and eat it. (laughs) (laughs) We went nuts about it. Yeah. I don't think that was as much in the vortex as the on the day thing that Auburn did. But that's how intense you get about these swim meets. Yeah. And then um, this is not comparable at all to, you know, coming together around a longtime coach who was diagnosed with a horrible illness. But for us at the 2010 championships, the norovirus hit. And I think seven guys, including Eddie got sick. And there was this big coaches meeting with the CDC where all of the coaches were in the room with CDC officials. And by the way, the first thing that I heard after that meeting and the meet getting delayed a day to accommodate all the sick people was Brett Hawk was one of the first people to speak up and say, Hey, we got to, push this meet even though you guys had nobody sick on your team and i remember feeling like you know i hate auburn but that's awesome (laughs) but day it's the same flow of the meet except it was us and cal instead of us in auburn and after day two um we fight through all these guys being sick texas has the momentum after the a free relay even though cal's up in the meet and we had this big rah-rah meeting the morning of day three and where you guys did the whole thing where you were like, let's go hunting and you tore up the shirt. We took on a mantra of, we can't wait. Our prelims are our finals. We have to end this thing right now, this morning, and we can't wait until tonight. Yeah. And I know I could feel it in the room, even though I was not at the meet the year before, the guys were attacking the 200 back the exact same way 
that you guys did. And if you look at how um, the seedings ended up, it's very similar to what you guys did. And that ended up being our spike in the morning 200 back prelims. So it's amazing. You get so invested in a rivalry that it makes you better and you almost reflect your rival in a way. Yeah. And and look, honestly, I think any great NCAA championship is going to have some type of story behind it like that, you know, where you're getting a group of guys together to fight united uh, for a cause, you know, for something bigger than themselves. And they've got to put their own feelings and emotions aside. You know, I, I remember distinctly swimming at NCAAs as an athlete and being completely exhausted on day three every time I swam. I, I, I swam for three years at that NCAA level before I turned pro. But I remember getting to Saturday morning and knowing I had four 100 freestyles that day and just feeling completely wiped out. But I'm like, you know, even the guy that was number 18 on or sitting on the bench who hasn't really swum all weekend, you know, and, and here's me, this is my, this, you know, the morning of Saturday morning will be my 10th event. You know, I'm, I'm like, I, I got to get up and go again. You know, let's, let's go. I got to find more. I got to give more. And that's, that's the way it is with all winning championship teams, you know? So each year there's going to be stories like this and it's not against Texas. It's not against Cal. It's just about a group of men coming together and doing something bigger than themselves. And uh, I just, I love the stories, you know, I love how they get there. Eventually you got to figure out a way to get there. You got to find something that motivates you to get there or brings you together. And, and these stories are incredible. And I want to focus specifically on um, what you said about being wiped by day three. And I was too, by the way, because yeah. I'd come out of two 400 IMs day two, mm-hmm. and then I'd have to do the two back and four free relay day yeah. three. But again, like you said, you just have to press on and keep going. But some years when the team wasn't doing as well, I felt like I didn't have as much. And on years where it felt like we were doing great, Uh I had more to give. And I want to know how that experience as an athlete has shaped how you approach, I guess, uh, your wartime approach to a swim meet. And I want to focus on something specifically that you said on your own podcast, actually. Mm -hmm. It was on the Nathan Adrian episode. You talked about how you coached Bruno Fraz through a couple 50 freestyles. And you said, I think, uh, give 60% emotion in the prelims, but go all out physically and then 80% emotion in semifinals, and you can correct me, and then 100% emotion in the finals. And I want to know if you started thinking that way as an athlete when you were at these big meets and you were just drained by the end of them. I did, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of this stuff on myself. I think it's why I'm, I'm a really good sprint coach. You know, I, a lot of people say certain things about me in reference to being a sprint coach and what I am and what I'm not or whatever it is. But here's, here's the reality of it. I sprinted. I, I was a sprinter. I went through experiences myself as an Olympic athlete for many years as a professional athlete. So I, I studied myself. I learned myself as an athlete. Most athletes should do that, right? I asked a lot of questions. I made a lot of mistakes. I, I had a lot of successes, all of it. I had it all. And then I went on to coaching and, and jumped straight into the realm of exactly what I was doing on myself with some of the best athletes in the world. So I've got a lot of experience with this and I understand it. Um, I don't understand all the science behind it, but the science makes sense to me based on my own experiences. I can, I can relate it really well. So yes, I did experiments on myself when I, when I was a professional athlete. And one of the things that I had to learn 
as an athlete was how to produce your best swims when you need them the most in the finals, right? What I found was the people that swam their fastest times in the final, in on the last swim. So if you go a prelim, a semi, and a final, if you do those three swims and your last swim is your fastest one, you've got the best chance of getting on the podium. You've got the best chance of getting the result that you want ultimately, not the time, but the result. And so I found you've got to find a way to produce your best swim last, even though you want to, you know, you might be at the Olympic Games and you're racing the best guys in the world. You can't hold back in the, in the top 16. You can't say, well, I'm going to cruise this one because there's 16 of the best guys in the world there. You've got you to gotta go. So you've got to find a way to get the most out of yourself, but not giving everything completely. So what I found was uh, if I tapped into this kind of emotional-based performance, uh, not a physical, but more of an emotional-based performance. I could I could hold back slightly, and still give physically everything that I had, but knowing that I had something more emotionally. So what I would what I would do as an athlete, and then what I ended up doing with guys like Fred Busquet and Cesar Cielo and Matt Target and and uh, Bruno Fratus, you know, some of the best athletes in history. What I ended up saying to them was like, look, in the morning, I want you to be physically ready. You need to you need to be ready to make it through, but I want you to hold back emotionally. I don't want you to have a look on your face. I don't want you to have a feeling in your body. I don't want you to have a thought in your head. I want you to be physically prepared to go, and I want you to emotionally be be turned off. Just just be robot like, and um, and this takes practice. This is not something you can do on the day of the Olympics. This is you're gonna to have to practice this for for all season and maybe more seasons before that. So and then all the time in practice we would do these things in practice. So it's a it's a difficult concept to grasp, but when you do, you understand it completely and it makes a lot of sense and you can actually um, manipulate yourself. You can manipulate the performance. So if you hold back emotionally in the morning, you give nothing emotionally, then at night you kind of turn on a little bit. You, you, you have some thoughts of like, okay, I want to be, I want to be stimulated here, but I'm not going to be fully engaged and fully involved in my mental preparation of, of being ready to swim the best swim I've ever swum in my life. It's just the emotional state rises a little bit, but emotionally you're just kind of there about 80 percent and then you know in the final it's like all right i'm fully engaged i'm fully ready uh, i'm physically ready i'm emotionally ready to to give the best i've ever given in my life and and a prime example of this would be tyler mcgill who was relatively unknown going into the olympic trials he was up against michael phelps and ryan lochte for the hundred butterfly positioning Okay, in the at, at the U.S. as you know, it take, they take one and two, and usually those one and two have a have a great chance of getting on the podium at the Olympics if you're first or second at the Olympic trials. So we knew we had to beat these two guys or one of them to make the Olympic team. So we we went through this process. Tyler swam a fifty-one nine in the prelims uh, with no emotion. In the semi-final, he went fifty-one six. And in the final, he went 51-2 to qualify second right behind Michael Phelps for the U.S. Olympic team. So that's how he did it. And we had practiced this over and over again. And when you hit it, you get it right and, and you have success. And then you, you end up getting results like making the U.S. Olympic team and beating Ryan Lochte. You know I mean, it really works if you can nail it, you know? Absolutely. And you said that this takes months and months and years of preparation uh, this sort of separation between the emotional side and the physical side of sprinting. Um, how did you train yourself to do that as an athlete? And then I'd love if you could focus on 
maybe Tyler's progression to making the 2012 Olympic team just on training the emotional side for him? Or if not him, then maybe one of your other athletes that you train to have that detachment and then slowly detach more and more emotionally? Because I think it's a fascinating concept. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, I think every athlete might be slightly different. So you have to figure out, you know, what what um, gets them going emotionally, what state they need to be in emotionally. Some Some athletes need to be really, you know, you see athletes put music on and they need to be in a very... Um, high functioning, you know, pumping, pumped up kind of real emotional, like, like Caesar Cielo used to slap himself like crazy in finals um, to the point where people thought he was physically abusing himself, you know, so uh, he got himself very emotionally driven. Whereas my emotional state was, I would be sitting there very calm and relaxed, but internally I would be, um, it was almost like someone had given me an adrenaline shot, you know, it was like my adrenaline's pumping, everything is flowing. I'm kind of in a, a Zen-like state. It's almost like a trance-like state where, you know, a, an explosion could go off in the building and I wouldn't notice it because I'd be so locked in on my performance um, physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. So everybody's a little bit different. And so you just have to get to know the athlete and what drives them, what kind of state do they need to be in. And, and Tyler was a, a lot like me in that sense, but he, he, he looked calm on the outside, but there was a, a, a tornado going off on, in, on the inside where he was ready just to go, you know. So, but, but in the mornings, it was like, turn that off, you know, like just, just no emotion at all, no thought, just robot-like, you know. And so we would do this in practice. We would have days where I'd say, okay, we're going to do a prelim semifinal Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, you know. And um, maybe Friday morning was just – come in, don't really talk to anybody, just get your warm up done, get up on the blocks, boom, go. Okay. No, there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's no thought, there's no emotion, there's no, you know, we don't put anything into it other than just standing up on the blocks and racing. Okay. And, and just warming up appropriately to, to get that done. So you don't injure yourself. And then at night you come back and you'd practice again and you'd, you know, you may, maybe you put some music on in the pool. Um, Maybe you'd give them, you know, 10 minutes after their warm up to kind of just sit there and just get themselves ready. And then the next morning would be a full, like a full, um, you know, kind of like what they're doing at the ISL now, where it's like an event, you know, like in a, you'd have music, you'd have lights, you'd have, you know, you try and create the whole environment where it's, where it's intense. You'd have people cheering, you would have, um, you know, you'd go through a full race plan where you maybe have 30 minutes after you warm up to kind of sit and prepare yourself before you get up on the blocks and go mm-hmm. and, and and be fully immersed in producing the best performance you can produce so you know it's just all dress rehearsal that's ultimately what it comes down to is just how do you want to go through this process at the meet and do a dress rehearsal for it in practice and and try and be as specific as you can because you want it to be exactly kind of the same things that you'd be feeling on race day and, and, and hearing and like all of it, the sounds, the sights, the emotions, the everything you want it all there so that you can feel exactly what it's like. And I did a podcast with, um, uh, a breaststroker. Um, what's his name? Adam Peaty's coach, right? Mel Marshall. Mel Marshall would, would say that they did some, some things very similar with Adam Peaty in the lead up to, to 16, you know, where it was a, a full dress rehearsal of mental, emotional, physical, all of it. You know, they, they would do these things 
where um you know adam peter would play the music in his head that he, that they were going to walk out to and, and things like that so it's just it's it's very when you can when you can put all the emotions into it when all the senses let's say touch feel taste sound all that when you can put it all in you're going to get a heightened experience so you want to try and create recreate all those things gotcha and i'm really glad that you brought up the isl um, because you were one of the coaches for the LA Current in the inaugural year last year, and you guys had a full season where you were competing in meets um, all throughout the fall and winter. And I really want your perspective tying into helping out athletes on the day, because as a coach for the ISL, the athletes are completely decentralized, right? Like maybe a coach is brought on the staff because they have one or two LA current athletes on the team that they work with back home. But by and large, you're not seeing these athletes every day in practice. And then you go to a meet and you're trying to help them out in the best way you can. So what are some differences that you've noticed that you've had to adapt to in something completely singular, like an ISL meet where you guys are all coalescing on the day of and you're bringing the best that you've got as a team, even though you guys haven't really spent any time training together as a team, like a college team would. I'd love your perspective on that. Yeah, and no, honestly, it was difficult. And I had this conversation actually with Kim Bracken, who took my place this year because I, I, I work for Fitter and Faster full time. I can't just leave the country for six weeks and take off to go to the ISL. I'd, I'd love to. I love professional swimming. I, I love that environment. But um I couldn't do it. So I talked to Kim Bracken about it. She took my position on the LA Current and she said, give me some advice. I said, look, Kim, I didn't love my experience the first time around because we were coming in basically the day before race day with a bunch of professional athletes and we were competing for two hours and then going home, you know? So it was like, we didn't have a lot of time to make connections or relationships or understand the athlete or build trust. So a lot of these athletes just had... Um, a home program where they'd come in Friday. Yep. My coach said, do this. Um, okay. On race day, these are the things I, I generally do. And this is how I get myself ready. And then I get up and race. So we didn't have a lot of input and I would never want the coach to be the center of attention. I'm just there as somebody to help, you know, like when you check into a hotel, there's a concierge at the front desk. You know, I consider myself to be kind of like a concierge. Like when you check in, how can I carry your bags to your room? That's that's all I'm doing at the ISL is like I'm just picking up your bags and carrying them to your room. So like I'm a, I'm I'm there to help in any way that I can, but I'm not there to be the factor. I mean, the, these guys are professional athletes, so I'm just there to help. And 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 so like Nathan Adrian, one day in particular said, "Hey Brett, can you film me to the to the 15 off the blocks? Actually, to the 25. Can you film me to the 25 and and just let me look at it?" So I filmed it and I just let him look at it. So that was my role. It was just, I was just there to ca capture a video so he could see the things he wanted to see. So I felt like that was my role then. Now in this, this season, the second season, I think they're at a little bit more of an advantage, the coaches, because they're there for full six weeks, living together, performing together. They've got much more time to make relationships and, and build understanding and build trust. So I think it's actually going to be a much better scenario for a coach to really dig into some some real coaching you know um so i'm kind of bummed i'm not there now and, and that's ultimately what you what i think coaching should be is that um you know especially at the professional level the, these guys have a full understanding of of who they are primarily most of the time and and what they want and how they get it um so i'm just really there to assist in that any way i can you know 
yeah, I guess it'll be a big shift this year because everyone's over there in basically a bubble in Budapest together for a month and a half. It's like Fight Island, but a swim meet. I love your take on kind of what your role is when you go to an ISL meet because of the lack of, I guess, the lack of relationship you have with an athlete before you get there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that shaded at all your idea on what any coach's job is supposed to be at a swim meet that, and you know, every coach tries their best to be the best that they can be for their athletes at the swim meet. But some coaches can really get into asserting themselves. And some coaches, like you said, remove themselves. And like you said, are more at the disposal of the athlete. So I'm wondering if that uh, this ISL experiment um, kind of revealed to you a shift in perspective on that sort of thing where I guess you're more of a neutral presence at a swim meet or if you've always been that way and this just plays to your specific strengths as a coach. I've always felt that way, honestly. Um, what I try and do, and I actually had a conversation with Bob Bowman that came out just last week. We, we talked about this a little bit in his role that he played with Michael Phelps, the greatest athlete of all time. I'm like, Bob, what was your role on race day? And he, he basically, like, Michael and I didn't talk to each other on race day. We, we had a plan set. Um, I was just there. This is his words. I was just there to kind of you pick up on any little thing that may have been going on at the time. Now, Bob tells this incredible story of Michael Phelps swimming at the 2008 Olympics uh, in the 100 butterfly, okay, where he wins the gold medal by one one hundredth of a second. But going into that, he's had this full program and he's exhausted, just kind of like we would be at, at NCAAs. You know, he's exhausted. He's just from the 200 IM. He's completely wiped out, but he's got the 100 fly coming up. And Bob can sense that he's tired. So Bob um, went to breakfast with him the morning of the final of the 100 fly because the mornings, the, the morning finals were in the morning in, in Beijing. Um, so they went to breakfast that morning and Bob just mentioned that, you know, he'd read in the newspaper that, that Kavik had said that he's, he's going to beat him this morning. You know, he's going to take the eight gold medals away from him. You know, Bob, yeah, I Bob remember just that one. Lay, laid it out there for him. And then Michael did the rest, you know, obviously that got under his skin. And that's kind of the way I feel about a coach on race days. Like you're just trying to tap into any emotion that you feel like if they're ready to go, get out of their way. Like don't overdo it. Don't overcoach. If, if, they, if they need a little pick me up somewhere like Bob did with Michael, then you kind of hand it to him on a plate and then let him, let him take it, you know, and let him eat it. So uh, Bob did some masterful coaching in that, that respect, you know, and, and that's all it is for me is just, you're there to pick up on emotions, um, that they may be feeling. And, and if there's a, an uneasiness, if there's a, a lack of confidence, then you're there just to kind of reassure them. If there's, uh, too much confidence, you're there to kind of say, Hey, we've got to take care of business here. Or if there's, if they're in the right spot, it's just get out of their way. That's the way I see it on race day. Yeah, you're there. Uh, you're there. The most important thing from what I'm gathering from what you're saying is just presence. Mm-hmm. Like you're there to support them. Um, even if that just means literally being there and that's it. And then pivoting and reacting based on what they need. And yeah. that's such a shift from it's literally the opposite of when you're an athlete and you being an Olympian for Australia, you achieved at such a high level was there a transition period when you became a coach where you kind of had to flip that mindset or was that an easy switch for you? What I always wanted as an athlete was I wanted to know that um, I wasn't alone on race day. Like my coach had my back, like my coach believed in me, you know, a hundred percent. Like 
you know, when you're at that level and you're racing the best guys in the world, there's going to be doubts. You know, I'm, I'm racing a guy by the name of Alexander Popov, the greatest sprinter in history. I'm, I'm actually racing him to try and win the Olympics. You know, that's my competition. How do I wake up on race day and fully believe that I'm better than Alexander Popov? Like that's, that's tough for any kid, you know, I don't care who you are. Um, and, and certainly for someone, you know, Alex is six foot seven, I'm six foot two, you know, he's, he's cut to shreds. He's got this perfect physique, you know, and I, I'm not, I'm not a slouch by any means, but I, I knew that I didn't look like Alexander Popov. I wasn't, I wasn't physically as gifted as him, even though I had physical gifts, don't get me wrong. So I had a lot of confidence, but it's like, how do you believe that you're better than everybody else on race day? And so you want to have a partner there. You want someone else that believes in you just as much as you're trying to believe in yourself on that day of like, today's your day. Anything can happen, you know? So you want, you want somebody to sell you that belief that, Hey, we're doing this today. And that's all I've tried to be as a coach. I try to wake up uh, on race day and be that person from athletes where they, they can look me in the eye and say, this guy's got my back. This guy's with me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I certainly have tried to do that for all my athletes. Now it became challenging for me when I had athletes that were just as good as each other in the same event. You know, I, I coached a lot of great sprinters at the time and two that come to mind that I talk about a lot is, is Cesar Cielo and Fred Busquet. You know, they both broke the world record within months of each other. They're the only two athletes in history to swim under 21 seconds in the 50 freestyle. Okay. Both by their own rights, uh, two of the greatest sprinters in history, you know, but I coached them both at the same time. So how do I re- wake up on race day and give Caesar the belief that he needs and give Fred the belief that he needs to say, Hey, you're both good enough to win the, the world championship or the Olympic games today. So that that's becomes a tough balance, but honestly, I've learned from watching people like your coach, Eddie Reese. I think Eddie Reese is a master of, of things like this. You know, he's always had the best athletes in, in multiple events and, um, I think he does a masterful job and you could probably tell us a little bit about how Eddie handles it himself because, um, I think he's one of the greatest in history to be quite honest. It seems like compared to other coaches, um, that I've been around, not necessarily had because I've had great coaches my whole life, but, uh, I guess the best way to sum up Eddie is do less, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. presence yep. and being at the athlete's disposal, but the gravity around him when you're an athlete you want to go to him anyways so he almost uses that subconscious supernatural gravity without saying any words to guide what you're doing on race day where it's almost like if he says nothing you're seeking out something for him to say whereas like say a volunteer assistant coach at some other program they say nothing the athlete doesn't notice it okay and not to crap on it because i was a volunteer assistant myself but i think that And you yourself, I mean, you basically had just to give a more broad visual of how important Caesars Yellow and Fred Bousquet were in their specific time. It'd be like having Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte as a 400 IM coach on the same team. And so that means you had a level of presence to you as well. Um, I want to know, and if you could give us just like a little story about how about how you manage those two at the same time, maybe at one meet. Do you have any specific memories of that where you were like, you had to kind of um, oscillate back and forth, basically getting them both ready to win a gold medal, even though only one of them could? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I did a podcast with Fred Brusquet and we talked about this um, recently. 
it's the first time I've really face to face had a conversation about and, and being able to be honest with each other. And, and this is, it's difficult, you know, I, to this day, a lot of people may not know this, but Caesar and I relationship is strained. Um, we don't really talk to each other. Uh, I think more of it is on his side than my side. I'm, I'm at this point now where I don't coach anyone, you know, uh, like that. And so I, I've kind of moved on with it and, and, you know, it's water under the bridge, but you know, to an athlete, they, they hold on to that stuff. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's their life and it's their future and, and they feel a certain way about it and they, they may hang on to it a little longer and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with season, not talking to me as much as I'd want to talk to him right now, but I know that that may, that will come around, but it was a very difficult situation for me to have a Caesar Cielo and a Fred Bousquet. And like I said, they broke the world record within months of each other. And they were both training with each other. And I was their coach. And um, they both wanted to be the number one guy in my eyes, you know. And I couldn't ever um, give them that fully, you know. And I always felt like I was torn. I felt like I was just in the middle. I was almost like a, you know, for a really bad analogy, I was like a, a, a man with two girlfriends, you know. <laughs> like I could never, <laughs> could never, never satisfy either one. It was like, it was, it was very difficult. So... Um, but on level of a significant emotional relationship with both yeah, of them where, of mm, yeah, 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 and you're around each other every day. Yeah, you know, and again, I, I'm fairly in tune with my, especially my 50 freestylers because I understand emotionally what where they're at and what they're trying to do and, and how they're trying to do it. Um, so emotionally on that sense, like I know that I need to be believed in. I need you to believe in me. I need you to believe that I'm number one. I need that. And so I, within that need that I knew they had, I felt very stuck because I couldn't give it all to Caesar. I couldn't give it all to Fred. But in their eyes, the way they saw it was I believed in Caesar more than Fred and, and Fred thought, I, you know, Caesar thought I believed in Fred more than Caesar. That's just the way they saw it. And to this day, they, they, I think they still see it that way. Like, no, you can't tell me that you didn't believe in him more than me. And, um, and that hurts, you know, because until you're put in that situation, let me know how you'd handle it. You know, it's, it's, there's no, there's no playbook for that as a coach to say, Hey, you got these two studly sprinters who both want to be number one. You better, you better show them that you believe in them more than the other. And and so I don't regret the situation because I think it, I was very lucky because ended up being that Caesar won the world title and Fred got second. So they both, did what they were meant to do in terms of beating the rest of the world, but one of them lost, you know, and, and, and even actually the guy that won holds it against me more than the guy that lost. So it's like, I couldn't win, you know? So, um, I don't know, you know, there's probably more to it than that as well. You know, there's probably other times where they, where they saw things differently as well. And maybe, maybe that's what they, they still hold on to to this day. But look, Honestly, you know, really, sprinters are very sensitive. You know, they're very sensitive people. Um, and well, it's you know, a very eventually. it's a very emotional skill, right? Whereas, yeah. mm -hmm. like a distance swimmer, it's very rigid and training and VO two max and on the day, like just sticking to your plan. Whereas a sprinter, they're not. They are emptying the take in a fifty in a way, but they're also finding out ways to literally max out the tank, right? Like finding yeah. more refined fuel. And so that comes from something deeper than the physical body. Um, and by the way, it should be noted, um, just for people who aren't aware, 
despite the tumult that you're describing, these guys both multiple Olympic medals, multiple world records, incredibly successful careers that you guided them to. And I guess your, how do I put this? Your acceptance of the relationship now, I think indicates the best quality of a coach, which is when you're in one of those no-win situations where you're guiding two guys with, as you said, who are very sensitive and are competing in the same events, sometimes you're just not going to win and your only job is to make sure that they win, right? Mm -hmm. And so it may end with, um, I guess, one of them, maybe not speaking to you, but you know, in your mind, Caesar got to the heights he got to. He was an Olympic champion, a world record holder, Fred, Olympic medalist, world record holder, and I don't know. I mean, maybe you can give me your thoughts on that, that sometimes as a coach, like you're not going to win, but it's kind of your job to guide the athletes to the win. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. It does actually. Yeah. I connect with that a lot. The way you put it there is like, you know, it's again, it goes back to, it's not about me. How can I get the best out of them and ultimately get the performances that they need? You know, the perfect situation for me would have been in 2008, the French team winning the four by one freestyle relay. That was, that was like, for me, it was like, okay, we're going to get it now. Like I feel good. Caesar's going to get his gold. Fred's going to get his gold and I'm going to be okay. You know? And right. J- Jason Lezak came and spoiled the party for me. You know, cause, uh, <laughs> Fred, Fred gets the relay team in the lead and on the third leg. And, and, you know, you've got the, uh, the world record holder diving in for you on the last leg. And you're like, okay, he's got a body length lead. He's the world record holder. No problem. We've won this race. And, and for me, it was like, okay, perfect. Fred's got his Olympic gold. Caesar's got his Olympic gold and everybody's happy and and that's not the way it went. And so, you know, if I have any one regret, it's that Fred never became Olympic champion because I think Fred is one of the greatest sprinters in history. It, it top to me is like top five. You know, you put him up there with a pop of a Van and Hoogen band, you know, um, Gary Hall Jr., you know, these type of athletes. Like Fred's in there, you know, and Fred never won Olympic gold. So it for me, that's the one piece of it where I, I have like, damn it, I wish that happened. But ultimately, like you said, they got the results um, that most people would kill for. So we can't complain too much. I would say pretty much anybody except for them being one of a couple billion people on earth that have mm-hmm. gotten to where they've gotten. Um, yeah. yeah. And Fred, by the way, if you guys listening want to find out more about that 4 by 100 freestyle relay, um, it's the one that everybody knows where Jason Lezak came back and won. Check out Brett's podcast because he, he interviews Jason Lezak to get the American perspective. And he interviews Fred Brusquet to get the French perspective. And it's absolutely fascinating. It is, yeah. um, at the very least, everyone in the swimming community remembers exactly where they were when they watched that happen. And I'm sure, you know... Millions of people outside of swimming know where they were too, because that was such a big moment just for world sports and it transcended yeah. swimming that way. But I want to move on to what you're doing now. Um, you mentioned that you're working with Fitter Faster, and not only is it great that now you have a chance to give back, work with kids, um, develop the talent and the youth of America with these camps, and getting to work with thousands of them. But your specific role, and for those who don't know, Brett basically reaches out to us and hires us for camps. And 
he manages is this the best way to put it brett the talent for fitter faster yeah exactly i'm like the the talent manager for sure you're you're basically our coach and so this puts you in this network of hundreds of awesome professional swimmers and coaches and you at the center um and you're also seeing through fitter faster and through your role there a big shift in what people in the swimming community have at their disposal to support themselves, whether they want to pursue a dream as a pro, even though they're not an Olympian and they might not be there yet right out of college, or if they want to be an ISL swimmer, or if they're just getting started in the coaching ranks, like when you were hiring me to do clinics when I was not getting paid at the University of Virginia to be a volunteer. So how are you seeing that shift from where there was basically nothing at the athlete's disposal, at least in the United States in the 2000s and most of the 2010s, through the lens of your role with Fitter Faster. Yeah, well, I think the the vision ultimately has come from our CEO David Arlock, who who started this company of like you know wanting to put the best athletes in pools all around America to to help connect with kids, you know, and and promote the sport and and also give athletes like yourself who aren't making any money who've had incredible careers who may not have been olympians or may have been olympians or whatever it is but you know there's never been a lot of money in swimming you know Mm -hmm. and so this is a way for professional athletes to um give back to the sport and also get something from it you know to to get some income from it as well and but but ultimately what we're trying to do now is puts put incredible athletes with incredible stories you know, for you to go on and get a scholarship at, at a college in America, it's you're you're an elite athlete. You know, I don't care who you are, that you're an elite athlete. You know, if you're a football player and you're getting a scholarship, you're an elite football player. So uh, it's the same with swimmers. And a lot of these athletes go on and get incredible degrees. They go on to incredible professions. But a lot of that is has started in in the col- the collegiate system. And they just have great experiences and they can share that with younger kids. So I think that for me, what I've tried to do, you know, a lot of what our business was originally was putting, connecting Olympians with, with uh, younger kids, you know, and telling their stories. But the reality is, you know, less than 1% of the people that we go and connect with are going to be Olympians, you know, so a lot of people can't connect necessarily with the Olympic story. It's a great story, but it's just not for everybody. It's not for the majority, actually. But a lot of people can say, hey, I'm going to go and get a degree in college and, and I, want to, I want to be like Austin Serhoff. You know, I want to go swim at Texas for Eddie Reese and get a scholarship and become an NCAA champion. That's an incredible story, you know. And, and just to say, you know, from where you came from and how you got there and the support and the decisions you made as a 15-year-old to, to get to where you ended up getting – these are great stories. And plus, and then through your experiences at Texas and, and with Eddie, you can then say, hey, this is how we do things. This is how I swim freestyle. This is how I prepare to go to practice in the morning. Um, these are the decisions I made behind the blocks. You know, you give your whole experience to these kids and it's something they can connect with because they see themselves in you. I could be the next Austin Serhoff. I could swim at Texas. I could swim for Eddie Reese. These are incredible stories. So that's all I'm trying to do is um, get really great people with great stories, with great careers on all levels to connect with kids all around the country. And I've got an incredible database of people in my phone right now where I can, I can text or call anybody and say, hey, I need you here. I need you there. 
And I know they're going to put on an incredible clinic for a bunch of really young, aspiring kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, one of my favorite things to think about, this has actually helped me put my own career in perspective because, and you know this yourself, even being an Australian Olympian, you were probably in a bubble where you were comparing yourself to other Olympians and you were like, oh, I'm just like your average Olympian, right? Like you kind of had those thoughts, correct? Yeah, sure. I've had those thoughts too, where it's like, well, I was an NCAA champion, but like it was two seconds slower than the year before and I only touch a guy out. And you go to these clinics and you realize, wait, every single parent that's here, if a genie went up to them and said, hey, your kid will just fast forward and be awesome tomorrow, 110% would say yes. Yeah. And so that's twofold. Number one, it helps you process and be like, wow, I actually did something Mm -hmm. cool. Number two is it helps me be more personable at these clinics. And what I try to do is basically be a flesh and blood representation of the journey that the kids and the parents will take. So I talk about, hey, I had a retainer. I wore braces twice, right? I had a daily inhaler that I used when after I brushed my teeth every night and I'd be brushing in front of a bathroom mirror where I have goal times pasted. And I agree with you that... That's the important thing is making it real. I absolutely love, because I didn't know this about the business plan that you and David kind of shifted things where it went from let's connect people with Olympians to let's connect kids with basically anyone who's had some modicum of success in the sport. And I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg thing, but I have noticed that sort of shift in the overall swimming community and the public at large over the last 15 years too, where... You know, when I was back in high school, it was, are you an Olympian? Oh, okay, cool. Well, good luck. Or are you going to be the next Michael Phelps? Uh, well, no. Okay, yeah. good luck. Mm, like, yeah. sweet, see ya. And now it's like, wait, you're an NCAA champion? That's super cool. Or you got a college scholarship? Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's super great. Yeah, I agree. So I wonder if Fitter Faster has even benefited from that shift or even initiated that shift because you run thousands and thousands of swim clinics and are planting seeds that, Hey, there's so much in the scale of success in this sport. Listen, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I believe we, we created the shift honestly, because even, even when I first came in, there was this, you know, I don't know if this will work. I don't know if people want to hear this. I don't know if people will connect with that person. I don't know if that coach wants that, that kid, you know, they want an Olympian. Like I got, I got so much pushback initially to say, no, we want an Olympian. No, we want an Olympic medalist. No, we want a gold medalist. You know, I got, I kept getting pushback and I was like, hang on a second, give this kid a chance. I know this kid personally. I know Austin Serhov can deliver an incredible clinic. He swam for Eddie Reese. Tell me anybody that's got more experience uh, at swimming at the highest level than somebody that swam for Eddie Reese. Like, come on, man, like give this guy a chance or, you know, and, and so I'd have these conversations with coaches and then Austin Serhoff would come in, destroy this clinic and kill it. And they'd be like, Oh wow, we want him back. He's incredible. You know, or anybody of, of, of you know, the same storyline that Austin Serhoff has. I, I, I was putting females in as lead clinicians and, you know, pe- people didn't want females as lead clinicians. And, and a female who just swam at, you know, NC State, you know, it was like, we don't want her. It's like, trust me, you want her. She's going to come in and kill this clinic. 
and then they're begging to have her back, you know? So it was just this shift and it took, it took a while, but we got there. Now I don't get any pushback. I don't get any coaches anymore saying we want, we want just Olympians. I don't get anybody saying we want gold medalists. I don't get that at all anymore. I get, Hey, I know that whoever you give me is going to be incredible and they've got incredible stories. Send anybody you got on your roster. And that's, that's where we want it. You know? Yeah. It's creating an entire paradigm shift for everyone that comes in contact with the clinic, whether it's the coach setting the clinic up and then being there or the kids that are actually participating or the parents that are buying the tickets and bringing the kids there. Um, I want to also know about the paradigm shift with the athletes. And I want to focus specifically on one facet of your job. So we've got the ISL, we've got these fitter, faster clinics. There's kind of a cocktail that the modern swimmer post-college can put together to keep swimming if they're pretty good. They don't have to be an Olympian, which when I graduated college, 2013 was my last varsity year. It was like, well, I might as well go through 16 because I got fourth in 2012. But instead of, hey, I can support myself, it was, hey, mom and dad, um, because I didn't have access to these clinics or to the ISL. There was no scale where I could participate with my talents. So I want to know how the widening paradigm has affected specifically the athletes who are coming up through high school and college, because part of your job is identifying athletes who are done with their college careers and, you know, 2017, 2018, onward to 2020 and beyond, and basically bringing them in to do fitter, faster clinics. And now they're in this life of supporting themselves and full-time training to reach their goals in swimming because they can do the clinics on weekends. So what shift are you seeing in how athletes can go about supporting themselves and achieving their goals and pushing forward, even if they're not Olympians out of college? Yeah, we're just giving them a platform to continue to be professional athletes, you know? So what I generally do is I'll take a kid and they'll say, I've never done a clinic before. I said, look, no problem. I'm going to put you with guys that have for the first three or four clinics, you're just going to be an assistant. Basically, you're going to be an assistant coach. You're going to soak it all in. You're going to learn. You're going to learn how to communicate properly what you what you already know. You're going to learn how to put your thoughts into words. You're going to learn how to connect with kids. But you're not going to do it in a setting where I'm expecting you to carry this clinic. You know, Austin Surhill is going to carry the clinic. He's been doing this for years, and he's going to mentor you. So now I use the people that I've mentored as mentors who then pass down. It's the same thing you would do in a college setting, right? You know, you get your your seniors with your freshmen. You say, all right, seniors, teach them everything that you want, uh, that, that you've been taught over the years, you know, mentor and, and help. Get It's like coaching, you know, um, peer coaching. That's what it's called, peer coaching. You bring them together. Mm-hmm. So we do that. And, uh, and then after three or four clinics, they say, oh, I'm ready to lead my own. I got this, you know, and then they go out and do it. And, but it gives them a platform to continue um, being connected to the sport they love. And that's what a lot of these athletes tell me is like, I just love giving back because this sport gave me so much. I love being with the kids. I love seeing the smiles on their face. I love reading the um, surveys we get back to say, hey, this person changed my stroke or this, this person inspired me or, you know, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning and now I jump out of bed because this, this person told me this and they love that stuff, you know? So, um, that's all we're trying to do and, and it's successful right now. We're doing hundreds of clinics all around the country and, and being very successful. Mm-hmm. And how is that, um, that farm system, I guess, to use a baseball term, 
that's developing these athletes and turning them into clinicians while they're also training Mm -hmm. and maybe having dreams of the ISL or those old school FINA goals of making the Olympics or worlds, et cetera. Um, But either way, there's actual capitalism involved here for the swimmer to participate in. How does that change the world for say a 10 year old now who's going to be an elite swimmer by the time they're in college? How does that change their prospects and how does that change the goals that they can set for themselves? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I say to these athletes, how much money do you need to survive? How much money, you know, how much rent money do you need per month? How much, how much money do you need for food and travel? How much money do you need to, you know, have, have a little bit of fun, go to the movies, things like that? How, how much do you need? You know, do you need to work one clinic a month? Do you need to work two clinics a month? And usually our clinics are on weekends, so they can train all week and then they go off and they can even get training in during the clinic, as you know. And But, but generally on weekends, they can come work the weekend and then get back to training the next week. So they don't really miss much. But that weekend of one clinic per month might might pay their rent for them, you know, and then that way they don't have to stress about, I've got to find rent money or I've got to go out and get a, a, a nine to five or whatever it is, you know. So this keeps them connected to the sport. Uh, it takes a little bit of their time and not too much. And, and you know, one month a, one month a week, uh, oh, one weekend a month could actually pay for the whole month's rent, you know. So it, it's really helping these athletes survive in a very positive, practical way. Um, and if, if they want to do three clinics a month, you know, and make, make more money than having just to pay their rent. They want to pay off a, a car loan or whatever it is, or you know, save some money. They, they have the ability to do that too. So it's really, it puts the, it puts um, all the power in their hands to say, Hey, how much do you need? How much can we help you with? How much do you need to support yourself? And um, Hey, if you want to be a professional athlete for the next four or five years, here's a system where you can keep it viable and, and stay healthy and, and do what you need to do to be a professional athlete but also, um, you know, pay all your bills. Yeah, and it's such a stark contrast to um, another episode of your podcast. I hope people realize that I'm, I keep referencing it because there's so many great nuggets in it. Um, it's the Rowdy Gaines episode. And he's one of the first guys to make money from the sport after he was successful. But before that, he had actually moved to Austin, Texas to train with Eddie Reese in the 80s. And he mentioned on your podcast that he became a night bellhop at a hotel to support himself. And yeah. so we come from there to, you know, someone like myself who was lucky enough to have some privilege and be supported by my parents in the 2010s, but still not really feeling like a pro and like I wasn't charting my own path despite a being pretty successful. I mean, my first summer as a pro, I made the world university games and I am an NCAA champion. And I also made like a dash of money or two from swimming. And yet to now someone who yeah. graduates, let's say a John Shepard who graduated in 2019, who was an NCAA champion and a Wolves qualifier and way faster than I ever was because that's just what happens. The kids get faster, but he's not an Olympian. And he runs clinics all the time. He runs three or four a month. And it opens up the, the time he needs to swim and support himself and be in the ISL last season for the LA Current and probably put some extra money in his pocket. And that gives him total control over his destiny and also gives him space to set goals for himself as a swimmer without really needing to say, hey, I need to be an Olympian and be successful. So I guess I see that shift radiating throughout decades starting now. And I don't think we have begun to understand the effects. Um, of the industry that's popping up from fitter faster from the ISL has impacted the future just yet. 
Yeah, for sure. I'll correct you on one thing. He swam for the Cali he, Condor, so he'll probably be able oh, to say this. <laughs> my bad. He, he didn't swim for. I wanted him to swim for my team, but uh, he decided against it. So we had we had to beat him. Um, but now he's a good kid. I love John. He's awesome. But you're right. He did. He uh, he, he runs incredible clinics, and he's been able to to keep that professional career alive by by doing clinics. Because the day that he graduated from Texas. And no, no, I commend his parents for this, but the day he graduated, they said, okay, you're done. Like the money is cut off now. You got to go support yourself. You know, and that's, that's a great way to, to live. I, I want, I want my kids to have that, um, understanding and attitude as well as like, Hey, you're on your own now. Go, go find a way to make the most of your education and, and everything we've done for you. Go be a man great you know and then john did that he went and, and he does clinics he runs some incredible clinics but um yeah he's a great example of somebody that has figured it out you know and we've, we've given him a, a vehicle to be able to do that and i hope that this league continues to grow so that kids decades from now have even better vehicles than what we have right now to continue to benefit from pro swimming and chart their own destinies more than anyone in the past could have ever done Yes. Well, here's why. Here's my criticism to athletes. Right. Go for it. If you want, if you want this to succeed, support it. Right. Katie Ledecky, support it. Okay. You're making millions of dollars. I get it. Not everybody is, and not everybody will. And if we, if if you just want that model to to exist, of okay, all right, become Katie Ledecky and make millions of dollars, and just three or four people in the world can survive like that. And that's the way it'll stay because it's it's like that now. You know, you have your Ian Thorpe's, you have your you have your uh, Michael Phelps's, and you have your Katie Ledecky's. All right, you have you have your superstars that make all the money, and everybody else is starving. Well, unless you get a Katie Ledecky to say, you know what, I'm going to put myself out like an Adam Pitty. You know, kudos to Adam Pitty. Good for you, mate. You know, has supported this league since day one, and uh, is one of the world leading swimmers, and gets behind it. Well, my criticism to a couple of Americans is get off your ass and do the same thing. All right. Support this league. Get out there and support professional swimming. You know, I'm, I was really upset when Katie, you know, and, and I'm not picking on Katie. There were others. There were others. There, there were others for sure. But, you know, uh, she had signed up for a team in her hometown, um, the, the D.C. Trident. There was a meet in D.C. She was on the team, and she didn't even turn up for the meet last year in D.C. It's like, come on. Like, you're on that team. You signed up for it. Go and swim at that meet. I don't know what the circumstances were, but it upset me, you know, and uh, there were others like that. So it's like, look, if we want a future for swimming, if we want to change from from top to bottom, we've all got to get behind it. Otherwise, it will probably fail. That's why I commend people in similarly rarefied air like Nathan Adrian, for example, that gave themselves completely over to it. And Ryan Murphy and uh-huh. all these people that got Caleb, together Caleb last Dressel. year. Caleb Dressel, mm-hmm. arguably the best swimmer in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, yeah, the ISL right now, if you're comfortable and you are Caleb Dressel, you can be comfortable not doing it, right? You can cash in on NBC Loves You and you can go to the Olympics and make millions of dollars and set world records, et cetera, et cetera. Like you said, the point oh one percent But for the ISL to work, everyone has to believe in it. And when you're a part of this, mm-hmm. just kind of half-heartedly and not really giving yourself over to it, then the people at the bottom in viewing aren't going to believe in it either. They're just going to kind of punch a ticket and be like, all right, well, I guess I'm watching this yeah. swim meet. I guess I'm on this ISL team. 
the superstars that give themselves over to it, those are the ones that are going to inspire this thing to truly last. Because that's all sports leagues are is, do you believe that this is worthwhile? And I feel like the big four sports in America, and now especially golf, has that, that their audience watch because they believe it's important, right? Like the NBA is important partially because LeBron James believes the NBA is important. Yeah. So the ISL needs that at the beginning, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. And look, I'm not criticizing any one individual swimmer. So it's all our responsibilities. You know, I I sacrificed last year to be part of it. I couldn't I couldn't do it this year because it was a six week block uh, for me professionally because I have a full time job and it just it doesn't pay coaches enough. But in terms in terms of the athletes and what it can do for them, um, there has to be a buy in for sure. You know. Absolutely. And maybe not even a criticism on your part, but just like those athletes identifying, I guess, the mindset that they're still buying into this whole FINA mindset and we're trying to shift it. And like we said earlier, create more opportunities for future generations to have goals and support themselves in different ways. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a good stopping point. Um, But before we go, Brett... As you and David are basically the guys at Fitter Faster, so I'm super excited to ask you this question. I do a segment called Fitter Faster Faves where I ask anyone who does clinics um, with Fitter Faster, what is your favorite question you get from kids at swim clinics? And it can either be one that you consistently get or one that was asked to you one time that sticks out to you. And how do you answer it? I swam in the era of... Michael Phelps around the same time we swam at the same Olympics right so he won his first gold medal in 04 uh, I I competed in the in the final of the 50 freestyle in 04 so we we swam around the same time so people kind of a lot of kids put two and two together or they just ask the question based on the fact that Michael Phelps is the only swimmer they know who's who's the greatest of all time and so they say to me um did you ever race Michael Phelps and my answer to that question is no he wasn't fast enough for me you know, uh, like it's a really arrogant thing to say, but, um, you know, Ian, I swam in the era of Ian Thorpe. Ian Thorpe was one of my teammates and Ian Thorpe was an incredible hundred freestyle, you know, um, world record holder in the 200 and the 400 mm-hmm. to swim up to the 1500. And, um, there was a, there was a funny story once where Ian came out and said in the media that he was going to swim the 50 freestyle for fun. And I actually called him up personally me and him had a phone conversation i said ian don't say those things because you don't want that you don't really want that you don't want to race me you don't want me to beat you you don't want to be embarrassed by me so don't say those things in the media that the 50 freestyle you're going to do it for fun because i'm going to beat your ass and it's going to be on national tv he doesn't want that smoke (laughs) you don't want that smoke man so i had that conversation with him so in, in in relation to the have you beaten michael phelps question is like no he didn't want that smoke like the he look in fairness to him i couldn't swim his events and he couldn't beat me in my event you know i had one event that was it he couldn't beat me in it but um he didn't want that smoke at the time and two things coming out of that that i love to say to kids is number one swimming's an individual sport right so Michael Phelps can be winning all these medals for Team USA when you guys are at the Olympics in the 200 IM and the 400 IM, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not like basketball where if he's dunking the basketball, you can't do anything about it on the other team. Yeah. All you can do is be Brett Hawk and show up for the 50 freestyle and do the best you can because Michael Phelps is nowhere nearby. He can't box you out and prevent you from finishing. Yeah. And the second thing, and it's, it's so perfect you brought this up about uh, the Michael Phelps and the 50 free 
it doesn't matter that he's the best overall swimmer. You have him in one specific skill, which is sprinting. I spend the beginning of every single clinic, no matter what the stroke is, I start with streamlines. And what I tell them, these kids, is, hey, none of us are going to be Michael Phelps. It's just not going to happen. He's the greatest athlete of all time, right? Yeah. Like, that's a level that literally 7 billion people can never reach. But you could have a better streamline than Michael Phelps because it's one skill and it's one thing you can work on that doesn't require training or height or the perfect uh, body shape that he has for swimming. It's just your mind and your technique. So thank you, Uh Brett. I love that take on, you may be that guy there, but I'm me here and you can't take that away from me or stop me from being that. Well, listen, at the end of the day, you got to believe in yourself. You know, I, I, I didn't make the Olympic final by having um, uh, a low self-esteem, you know, <laughs> right. that, that, that wasn't the case at the time. I believed in my abilities and, and um, I felt like I could take on the whole world. And I did. And a couple of people beat me. and I was OK with that. Well, thank you, Brett, for your time. This has been so much fun. Um, I'll talk to you soon, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Austin. Thanks, mate. Good luck with the podcast. Eh? Thank you. You as well. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> All right, see ya. All right, that's the show. Thank you so much to Brett for coming out. I really love that conversation. And I'm really glad that we got to touch on what it's going to take for the ISL to both grow and last and shape prospects for the future talent of swimming. I really believe that Decades from now, kids are going to grow up thinking, man, I wish I can swim for the LA Current, Brett's former team that he coached for last year in the ISL. But in order to get there, everyone's got to buy in, just like Brett said. So Brett is the first of our series that we're going to have over the next couple weeks. Uh, We're engaging ISL mode here at at the Pro Corner Podcast. Uh, Coming later this week, we've got Shane Ryan, who is an Irish Olympian and also Ireland's national record holder. And is also currently the star of the Toronto Titans ISL team. He's over there in Budapest right now as we speak, getting ready for their first competition. Uh, So tune in on Thursday. Uh, Wherever you're listening right now, rate, review, and subscribe. And if you're listening on an audio-only platform, again, we're on YouTube now. So you can get all episode audio and all future video podcasts, which we're going to be doing from now on, on our YouTube page and you can reach out in the comments if you want to leave feedback or ask a question or you can DM the pod on Instagram at Pro Corner Podcast or you can email the pod Austin at ProCornerPodcast.com. I'm doing a mailbag episode very soon like I referenced at the top and all of the best questions are going to get answered by myself and a special guest that I have coming. So have a great week and thanks for stopping by. See you guys.